Once again, good morning uh, to all. We are so very much blessed in so many ways, and especially with the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. We're here today to render our praise and thanksgiving to the one who makes it so very possible. This morning we're going to focus on what I'm simply going to call ministers of mercy. Uh, Ministers of mercy. And, of course, let's define a couple terms here. Minister, of course, someone who is seeking um, the good of other people, to serve other people. Mercy has reference to action taken uh, from a tender heart. Action taken from a tender heart. No one is so merciful as is our Heavenly Father. We are to be ministers of mercy because of what Jesus says in Luke 6 and 36. Luke 6 and 36, you will see it in your Bible, where the Lord says, Be ye merciful as your Heavenly Father is merciful. And that makes us be ministers of mercy. Just as a side note here, isn't the expectations and standards of God very, very high? Because as He is, He wants us to be. Be merciful, the Lord says, because I'm merciful. In 1 Peter 1, 14 and 15, He says, Be holy, for I am holy. We remember Jesus saying, John 13, 34 and 35, to his disciples, As I have loved you, so you love one another. We remember John's words in 1 John 3, in verse 16, As Jesus has laid down his life for you, so you ought to lay down your life for the brethren. And so, ministers of mercy... I want to approach our discussion by way of a prayer. Because every day that we every day that we get up and we get into life, we are to be thinking about being ministers of mercy. And we ought to be praying about it. So let me share with you a four-part prayer that can be and really should be prayed by all of us before we leave our place of dwelling every morning. The first part of the prayer will go like this. Lord, may I see the needs of the soul more than anything else. Lord, help me to see. When I say see, I mean feel and to know and to focus and do. Lord, help me to see the needs of the soul more than anything else. You see, there is a worldwide all-time pandemic. It has nothing to do with a virus or bacterial infection. It has no association with cancer or heart disease or diabetes. It is sin, as you know. 
It is a worldwide pandemic. It is what brings misery, what brings sickness uh, to the soul. 1 John 5, verse 19. 1 John 5, 19. The whole world lies in wickedness. In other words, the entire world is under the influence of the wicked one we know uh, to be Satan. That's why Paul writes in Romans 3, verses 9 and 10, there are are none righteous, no, uh, not one. Those who are sick need mercy. Those who are sick need mercy. We remember in Luke 16, 19 and 20, Jesus telling about Lazarus, who's very poor, and his body is covered with sores. He has some sort of sickness. And so they lay him at the rich man's gate every day. In Acts chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Peter and John are headed to the temple and they noticed a man, a lame man, lame since birth, who is carried every day to the gate of the temple called the beautiful gate so that he may be able to ask for donations to uh, the needs of his life. Sick people need mercy. And we are to be ministers of that mercy. Great gospel preacher who, who taught in the Memphis area a generation ago, Roy Hearn, Roy J. Hearn. He would call Christians often, he would call us this, he would say, we are practitioners of the healing arts. We are practitioners of the healing arts. And he wasn't speaking about voodoo or anything like that. He was talking about the gospel and and Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because that is the remedy for the sin-sick soul. Notice in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 15, Jesus speaking about the hardness of heart. But he comes to to the end of verse 15. He says, if anyone will understand my teachings really understand my teachings, they can be healed. Notice the connection between understanding the gospel and being healed in our souls. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, we recall Jesus at, um, at Levi's house. A bunch of tax collectors there. He is criticized for being there. And we remember him saying, those who are whole, who are well, do not need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. But notice in your Bible, look at Matthew 9, 13, and you'll see what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. His disciples were up on the latest sacrifice that ought to be offered at the temple area, but they were far behind on extending mercy to those who are sick in their souls. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So Lord, as I wake every morning, may I see, truly see the needs of the soul. This is going to take sacrifice and willing sacrifice. God doesn't want any sacrifice that's being compelled. He doesn't want us to serve by compulsion. 
He doesn't want us made to serve. It needs to come out of a willing heart. Notice that for yourself in 1 Peter 5 verse 2 as Peter references the ideal of shepherding the flock, but not by constraint, not by compulsion, but willingly. And he even goes to say, goes on in that verse to say, and do it eagerly as well. So we don't serve uh, the Lord just because uh, they can't get anybody else to do it. That's not a reason to serve. We don't serve the Lord just because it would be good for others that I do this. No, we, we serve out of a, a willing heart. Hebrews 13, 17 mentions serving uh, not with grief, but with joy. With joy. I, for one, I think that we ought to persuade people, but I'm not going to beg somebody. I'm not going to beg somebody to serve the Lord. Now, I'll persuade because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 14, that we ought to persuade men. But what persuasion means is to lay out the case for Jesus Christ. Help someone see that the most reasonable way of living life is to live for Christ. And he gives two qualities there, two realities in 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 14, that we ought to use in persuading people. First, he says, knowing the terror of the Lord. Terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And then he goes on to say that we are compelled by the love of Christ. Let me tell you something. If a person cannot be moved either by the burning thought of a burning hell... And they cannot be moved by the love of Jesus Christ displayed in his life and on the cross forever and ever. Then there's not much I can say to help them see the need. And so the first part of our prayer simply is, Lord, Heavenly Father, may... I see the needs of the soul and act appropriately. The second part of the prayer has reference to the glory of God. The second part of the prayer is like this. Lord, may all my efforts be toward your glory and never to mine or anyone else's. May all my efforts be toward your glory, never to mine or to anybody else else's glory you see we read in ephesians 3 20 and 21 it's it's kind of a a prayer Uh, paul says uh, now unto him talking about the lord now unto him who is able to do far more exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us unto him be glory in the church the very reason the church exists the very reason that we exist is to bring glory to God. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says in verse 31, Whatever you do, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Again, Paul says in Galatians 6 and verse 14, Far be it from me, God forbid that I should glory, except in the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
And jumping over to Peter, I love Peter's statements that he makes. In 1 Peter uh, 2, 9 and 10, he's talking about us being the people of God who once did not have mercy, but now we have mercy. And he says, due to this, we ought to be showing forth the praises of Him. We ought to be showing forth the praises of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And add to that, 1 Peter 4, verse 11 where, where the apostle says, If any man speaks, let him speak as it were the oracles of God. If any man serves, serves, let him do it according to the strength in which God gives him, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Unto him belong power and dominion and glory forever and ever. I just can't read that verse enough. 1 Peter 4 verse 11. Lord, may all my efforts, may all my thoughts be toward your glory and never to mine or any other human being. It's a matter of technicalities, I guess. Sometimes we say, well, the purpose of the church is to bring others to Christ. And of course it is. But first and foremost, the purpose of the church is to bring glory to God, whatever that in. in Involves, but it just so happens to be that bringing others to Christ brings glory to God. We remember what Jesus says in Matthew five sixteen: Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In other words, so live that those who are not glorifying God may do like you're doing and glorify God. And then we remember Jesus talking about being the vine and we are the branches. And he said the branches ought to be bearing fruit. fruit. In fact, he says in John 15, verse 8, isn't it about verse 8? John 15, verse 8. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove yourself to be disciples. So technically, the purpose of our existence is to bring glory to God. But then a big part of that purpose, of course is to bring others to Christ because that's God's heart. As an illustration of this, jump back in your Bibles to Psalm 126 and notice an interesting um, praise that's given to God. Psalm 126, first three verses uh, there. This is a setting where uh, the people of God being in captivity are now about to that time where they're going to get to return home, to the homeland. Verse 1, as the time approaches, it's almost too good to be true. It's like a dream uh, in their minds. But then verses 2 and 3, they're actually marching back home, and they're praising the Lord, and they've got joy, they've got laughter. And then verse 3, it says, here's what they're saying as they get back home. The Lord has done great things. The Lord has done great things for us. And folks, the the Lord has done great things, and we ought to be able to name all of them. Can you name a few of them? The world still needs to hear that the Lord has done great things and is doing great things through the power of His Word and the power of His providence. The Lord is doing great things. In Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, you remember Jesus healing a man who who was possessed with demons very a grievous situation with a man just hung out at the cemetery all the time. 
They tried to bind him with chains and fetters and he would break them loose every time. There seemed to be one demon in him, but when Jesus had a conversation with the demon, the demon said, we are legion. There are several demons in him. The demons begged Jesus not to send them out of the country, but rather send us into this herd of swine over here. And Jesus did that, and the swine ran off the cliff and ran into the sea. But the man who was so possessed was found then to be all clothed and in his right mind. And as you read down to about Mark chapter 5, 18 and 19, you see the man, as Jesus gets on the boat to leave, the, the people in the region wanted Jesus to leave. They'd never seen such, such power. They were scared of such power. They wanted Jesus to leave. So Jesus starts to get in the boat, and the man who had been possessed starts to climb in the boat with him. And Jesus looks to him and says, I need you to stay here. I want you to go home to your friends, your family members, and tell them the great things the Lord has done for you and how he has showed mercy to you. In other words, he wanted the man to go be a minister of mercy to other people. And so our prayer is, Lord, not only help me see the needs of the soul, but help me, Lord, to speak of your great things. And may all my efforts be to your glory and never to mine. You know, thinking about Jesus and that man possessed with a demon. Jesus had to leave that region and that man needed to be his spokesman. Even so today, Jesus is not here. He's in heaven. But he has left us behind for a very short time to be his spokesman, to be his ministers of mercy on this earth while we have the opportunity. The third part of our prayer would need to go like this. Lord, may I be true to your word, never adding to it nor taking away from it. If I'm going to be a minister of mercy, I need to pray this part of the prayer. Lord, may I be true to your word and never add anything to it nor take away from it. The spirit of this is found in 2 John verse 9, 2 John 9 where... John writes, whoever goes onward or goes on ahead and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. But he that abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If I'm going to abide in the word of God, I've got to be prepared. Peter says in 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, be ready always to give an answer to every man. I've got to be prepared. Souls that are sick deserve better than an unprepared Christian. You know, Jesus said as he's, as he's um, encountering the devil in the wilderness, Matthew 4, verse 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. People who are sick in their soul deserve better than a half-cooked meal. We need to be prepared with scripture. None of us appreciate a half-cooked meal. Have you ever had a Sunday dinner with rice and brown gravy and roast roast beef? Just to 
set yourself into that combination of meat and gravy and rice. And when you bite into the rice, it feels like a bunch of BBs. Okay. Rice is not supposed to feel like BBs. Rice is supposed to go down smooth. It's supposed to almost be like oatmeal. Okay. People who are lost, they, they deserve better. They need more than just a scripture here or there. God is looking to, to us to be prepared. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15 says, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. To not be prepared, to not study the scriptures, is to bring shame on God and yourself and to bring disapproval from God. You see it right there in your own Bible. Now, I do not have many gifts. I don't have any gifts, hardly, at all. And everybody, you know, Aaron Fletcher will look and say, I know, that's why you're a preacher. Right. So, but here's a, here's a gift that I know I do not have. I do not have the gift of miraculous reception of God's Word. God does not speak to me directly like He did at one time with Jesus and His disciples. Therefore, I must study. And I know this about you too. You don't have that gift either. And you must study. We must study. Let me add this to it. Did you know that those folks in the, in the early times, in the first century, who did have that miraculous gift of receiving directly the Word of God from Him directly, they also had to study. The scriptures that they would receive, they would continue to study them. They needed to study so they'd be prepared to share what they knew. And so if they needed to study, of course, we do as well. One thing that is sickening, I don't mind sharing this with you. I believe it has brought some dismantling of my own personal health. And that is that those who have been brought up in the old paths, in the old Jerusalem gospel, those brought up in these ancient words will oftentimes become carried away with the newest gospel fad or the newest religious gimmick They'll be carried away with the newest person who's saying things in the newest way. They'll be carried away with the newest program, the newest book that has come along. That's, that's very disturbing and it's quite sickening because the gospel is true and the gospel is 2,000 years old plus. If anything is truly new, it's got to be avoided. And discarded. If something seems to be new and you prove it by the Word of God that it is indeed biblical, then it was never new in the first place. It's just biblical, and the gospel is over 2,000 years old. Ephesians 4 14, we remember Paul saying, Don't be children anymore. 
carried about with every wind of doctrine. I tell you what, those who are carried about with every new little thing are not in the scriptures. That's just the way it is. Their head is out here in society. Their head is on Facebook. Their head is in the media. Their head is on the television. But they're not in the scriptures. You don't get much more immature than a bunch of idolaters. If you look over to Acts 17.21, the city of Athens had people in it who were just completely given over to idolatry. It says there that the, the Athenians spent their time in nothing else. Acts 17.21. They spent their time in nothing else but to hear and to tell some new thing. Well, that's all they could do because they didn't have the gospel, you see. But we have it. And shame on us. Shame on us. When some new personality comes along, or or a new fad comes along, a new gimmick comes along, or a new ideal comes along, we ought to be standing so strong and confident in the Scriptures that those things will never move us. So Lord, I pray... As I'm seeking to be a minister of mercy, I pray that you would help me to stay true to the Word of God, never adding a thing to it nor taking a thing away from it. And the fourth and final part of the prayer here that I'm thinking about is, Lord, help me to do good and no harm at all. I love that thought. I often say this little prayer in a a number of situations. If I'm about to sit down and study the Bible with somebody one-on-one, I pray this prayer a lot. If I'm about to go to a funeral visitation, I pray this a lot. I pray I I want to just do good and no harm at all because I'm not sure what I'm doing. I'm walking, when I walk into situations where I don't know what the situation is, I just don't want to do any harm at all. As ministers of mercy, we want to do good and no harm at all. First of all, we do harm by having a very poor personal example of Christ. If we're not shining in our example for Christ, then, then we are... We are doing some harm. Doing some harm. Titus chapter 2, 7 and 8 says, We are to show forth a pattern or a model of good works and have sound speech that cannot be condemned. 1 Timothy 4, 12 says, We ought to be an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. And this is especially important when you're away from the church building. Everybody expects it and it's so very easy to put on your Christian clothes in the church foyer. But where the power is for Christ is how we conduct ourselves both in thought and speech and further in action as we are carrying ourselves about every day of our lives. It's easy enough to be an example when you're around other Christians, but it's difficult when the pressure is on, when you're busy about doing your affairs every day. Then what is your speech? Then what is your temperament? 
That is where the real power for Christ must be uh, displayed. We do harm when we are poor, very poor personal example. Oftentimes we pray, and we ought to, that we would be representatives of God's cause, representatives of God, representatives of of Christ and the cross and the church. As Paul says in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And people could see that. And people must be able to see that in our lives as well. We do harm by having a bad example. We also do harm if we're unkind with the truth. If we're not kind in presenting the truth, we are to preach the, the truth in love, Ephesians 4 and 9. Ephesians 4.15. Colossians 4 verse 6 says, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may be able to know how to answer, give an answer to every man, every person. It's not just what we say, but how we say it. And we work hard to fill our hearts with love, the love of God, the very love of God, so that when we do teach the truth, it will, it will come out in such a way that others will receive it. Romans 14, 16 says, it is possible that our good can be evil spoken of. Romans 14, 16. Our good that we try to do can be evil spoken of, especially if we lack the love and mercy and compassion that God needs us to have. But more than anything, and I say this purposely, More than anything, we do harm by being silent. By being silent. All right? I want you to mark in your Bible, if you haven't done it in a while, Proverbs 18.21. Proverbs 18.21. Where where the, the statement is simple. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So when we speak, we're either going to bring forth words that would lead someone to life in Christ or we're going to bring forth words that will keep someone dead in sin. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And if we don't speak, that's on the side of death and not life. As we said a moment ago, we fill our hearts with the love of God wherein we want, to, we want people to to, to want to come to God. But let me tell you something. Those of the world are still, at, even at your very best efforts, those of the world are still going to criticize you. They're still going to speak evil of you. Even if you work day and night, you memorize 1 Corinthians 13, the qualities of love, and you work to put those in your heart, and you've got the full truth right before you, and you present that, let me tell you something. They're still going to speak evil of you But that means we still must speak up. We cannot be silent. Whether it has reference to the gospel plan of salvation, faith, repentance, confession, and baptism, or worshiping God in spirit and in truth, or the organization and purpose of the church, or whether it has to do with evils in the land such as transgenderism and abortion and the perversion of marriage and and the family, whatever it is, we must speak up. To be silent is unacceptable. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. God expects us to speak up. To speak up. Many 
And I've heard it. I know it. But I've also heard it. Many choose to say nothing for fear that they'll say it in the wrong way. That is not acceptable. That is not the will of God. The old saying is, I'd rather fail at doing something than to excel in doing nothing. I think we ought to remember that. Jesus told the man who was possessed with a demon, you go back home, you tell your friends. This man, as far as we know, this man, he had no training. He was not an orator. But Jesus gave him a commission. You go back home, you tell your people the great things the Lord has done and is doing and show them the great mercy he's had upon you. Ministers of mercy. I would encourage us to pray about it. Pray about it. You remember in Acts chapter 6 when the apostles had the the situation of feeding the, the Grecian widows and they appointed seven men and then they explained in Acts 6, 2 through 4 that they needed to to stay where they're at and keep themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. If we're going to carry out the word of God, we've got to be praying about it. I suggest that we pray this four-part prayer every morning or every night or whenever you have the opportunity. Lord, help me to see the needs of the soul. Lord, help my efforts to be to your glory and, and never to mine. Lord, Help me to stay true to your word. Lord, help me to do good and never any harm at all. If you're subject to the Lord's gracious invitation this morning, please consider how brief life is. How even brief your own health is. While you have opportunity, why not give Lord, the Lord your full attention, your full heart. If we can assist anyone. Any spiritual need, please make that known. Right now, Brother James, as we stand and sing.